Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. This week, we're going to finish up our conversation with the guys from the Pillar Seminary, talking about why understanding context and the context that Scripture was written in is so important to biblical interpretation. Today, we have part three of three, so this is the finale with these guys. Uh, We've got most of the faculty of the Pillar Seminary on the line with us from Omaha, Nebraska, and If you've been tracking with us uh, in part one and two, we've been talking about reading Scripture in context. And uh, part one was just why is it important to consider context when reading Scripture? And then part two last week was all about uh, issues of context in the Old Testament, just giving examples and walking through things to illustrate, hey, this is what context does when you understand the issues here and and, uh, how it really draws the meaning out of the text In a lot of ways, really what we're doing is understanding that we're coming to the text from a a very different culture, time, geography, and and, and all of those things. And when you do that, obviously, if any of y'all have ever traveled internationally or to another culture, then you, you realize it's very evident to you right in front of your face that you're in a different culture that plays by different rules, and you, you know, so you have to pay attention and that's really what's going on here as far as uh, our discussion with context and Scripture is trying to, as best we can, remove ourselves from our 21st century American culture, very Western thinking, and place ourselves into the ancient Near Eastern uh, situation that the Scripture was written in. So um, that's what we're doing, and uh, this week we are going to cover examples of this in the New Testament. But before we get to that, I'm going to allow these guys to introduce themselves. So we got the president and founder of the Pillar Seminary is Eric Smith. What's up, Eric? Hey, how's it going? Mm, good, man. Guys, guys, I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> I think while we were gone, he looked up movie quotes, <laughs> which I'm, I'm really appreciative of. I'm I love, love it. Good. And then we've got the, I guess their title for you is the academic dean. I know you love administration, Scott, so uh, I'll introduce you like that. But uh, this is Scott Booth. Yep. Uh, he's also the VP of academic affairs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, And then we've also got featured, actually, in this podcast is Dan Lowry. Hey, so, Dan, I'm going to throw it right over to you, man, and uh, I would love to hear what was the world that Jesus was born into, and when we think of the word gospel, I mean, a lot of times people think of gospel, and they immediately, they either think of, you know, the actual books in the New Testament, or they think of kind of this, oh, you know, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner, and God saved me, but... But for the people who were contemporary to Jesus, how would they have understood gospel, and what did it mean for this guy to show up and start to preach the gospel? Hold on, hold on. I can't help but interrupt, because gospel comes from the Old Testament. <laughs> so rather than letting Dan talk about this, really Scott is the one that no! should have asked that question. No, not doing it. I'll take it from here, boys. <laughs> That's awesome. Scott, why don't you tell us about the gospel of Shut Isaiah? Up, yeah. Scott, <laughs> the, the first part of this is Old Testament story. What no, the, what the good the news question. of Isaiah meant uh, is, is uh, in the context of Isaiah talking about the Lord returning and making things right after the exile. And so um, there are all kinds of, uh, a couple different places in Isaiah from 40 on that talk about uh, 
the good news will be when God shows up and finally makes it right. He restores his people. He saves them. He restores their former glory and restores them to the land and brings back all the peoples who've been scattered. So that's the gospel of Isaiah, and that is near and dear to the heart of all the gospel writers mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Yeah, he's called the Isaiah is called the prophet in the gospels. Yes, he is. Mark, yeah. Mark, by the way, begins his gospel with uh, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, mm. and then says, and here's how Isaiah put it. And, yeah, right. And, carves out this this path from Isaiah and Malachi and Exodus yeah. actually. So nice. a little little mashup. So that's the first thing to consider. When when a New Testament Jew would have heard the word gospel, they would have uh, understood it that way. There's there's Roman context to this as well. Uh, being that the word is just simply good news and to share the gospel, to share the good news as a herald of that good news. So the Romans had a gospel as well, and we get some sense of this from an inscription from about 10 B.C. uh, in Asia Minor, actually, uh, called the Pre-In Calendar Inscription. And the Romans, during the rule of Augustus, who brought about Roman peace to the Roman world, uh, wrote to these folks and said, you need to rearrange your calendar, and uh, it starts with the birthday of Augustus. Hmm. And any good subject of the Caesar would say, what? I just feel the need to say, because the listeners can't see Scott, who is currently about half asleep messing on his phone. Both of wow. you guys are playing video games on your phone. So uh, that's, that's a hashtag pillar seminary. Old so, Testament guys. So the guys write back, the guys write back to, to Rome and say, you bet we'll do that. And, and they, they send this letter back and they say, uh, I got it written here. It may be a little easier to just read some of this. It seems good to the Greeks of Asia in the opinion of the high priest, since providence or fate, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set the most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipation, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he's done. Mm. There's no chance of being any better than Caesar. (laughs) And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the gospel for the world. Mm. Uh, and, And so this is one example that we have discovered, which probably is not the only one that was floating around in the ancient world. The good news of Rome was that Caesar... God himself or son of a God has brought about peace to the whole world. And that's the good news. And uh, of course the, the angel army shows up in Luke two and proclaims the, the good news is that Jesus is the bringer of this peace. Yeah. So you've got this, you've got this context, this Roman context where obviously Caesar Augustus ends the civil war. You got Mark Antony and Octavian and they're fighting each other. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of just intertestamental history, but then down into where it's like, Hey, okay, this guy won that war. He's brought peace to the land. And that's, that's good news for us. I mean, we're not sending our sons off to fight each other anymore. And we're going to settle into this peace all the way to the point where in the first century, they're, they're printing Roman coins that has the image of Caesar on it, and it literally calls him the son of God, right? That um, 
And right in the middle of that, which would have been really calm. I mean, everybody would have known that. I mean, it's like, that's like saying, who's the president of the United States? Like everybody knows that whether you like him or not is another deal, but, but you, but you, you, you know that he's there. And then out of that, in this corner, this little pocket of the Roman empire comes this other proclamation that really not, not only is Jesus the savior of the world, but even more probably forcefully than that is Caesar is not. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And which is, which those are like fighting words, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there can be, you can only serve one master as Jesus said. Mm. Uh, and, and that's true to declare Jesus as Lord is to also say Caesar cannot be. Yeah. Right. So really, I mean, that, that, that brings a little bit deeper understanding of the first line of Mark, you know, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the savior of the world, right? The, the Messiah. He is the one. It's almost like the, the early Christians, the primitive church is going, hey, Caesar, that's not your throne. That, that's, a, um, that's a pretty significant countercultural statement. Yes. Yes, indeed. It, it really is. There's no better way to begin a story about Jesus and his life and ministry than to declare this is the good news. Mm. And that, I mean, ultimately, you know, we come to understand uh, also that, hey, not only is this the gospel about Jesus, the Son of God, but it's also the, like like you said at the beginning of Mark, where he's now he's quoting Isaiah, where it's like, hey, the good news is that God is here. He has arrived. This program is kicking. Um, it's It's going. So this word that we've like almost made synonymous with Christ, with Jesus— you're saying that a, a first century reader would look at this and pause. It would cause them to react in some way where our eyes just gloss over it. And so knowing the context of that word just changes the entire understanding of our text. And so similar to how you're saying God entered into uh, the culture and the understanding of the people in the Old Testament, he does the exact same thing in the New Testament. That's right. We see a pretty consistent character of God uh, all the way through Scripture that he accommodates he meets people where they are, or as John says, he uh, wrapped himself in flesh and tabernacled among us. That's yeah, uh, maybe yeah. the ultimate expression of accommodation. Mm. That's the character of God, is meeting meeting his people where they are. So let's talk about that in, on a deeper level. I've got two things that uh, are in my head right now just about the ministry of Jesus. One is, a lot of times you hear the crucifixion narrative where Jesus dies on the cross, and then this veil is torn from top to bottom. And, you know, actually every single time I've heard this preached, I can't think of one exception, where the pastor emphasized that, okay, now you have access to God. In other words, it's like the crucifixion event is really looked at from our perspective. What does this do for us kind of thing, and how, just given the Old Testament context and all of the temple language that, you know, you guys have talked about these past few podcasts, talk to us about what that means. But from the perspective of temple, temple language, uh, access to God, is, is the death of Jesus providing us access to God, or is it doing something else, or both? Yes. Boy, you just asked these really simple one. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I think so let's let's take a look at uh, there's a lot of 
lot of ink spilled over trying to wrap our minds around the significance of Jesus' death. Each of the gospel writers will describe it slightly differently. Mm -hmm. But one of the consistent things that is helpful, like you mentioned, are these cosmic signs that accompany his death and um, the, the three synoptics. The temple veil is split in two. And uh, this, this is, in some ways, cosmic commentary on, on what Jesus' death has brought about. And like you're saying, I, I think there is a sense in which there, uh, access to God has been granted. I think uh, maybe more naturally, though, from the Old Testament world, uh, what Jesus has been doing as God's agent, as the supreme prophet, is declaring judgment on the temple. He's just got done on the Mount of Olives mm-hmm. and his uh, little preaching, talking about the they're as good as gone. This temple's as good as gone, um, which in in uh, Old Testament terms or in Near Eastern world terms, the deity will leave mm. uh, the temple. The deity will abandon the temple and therefore also his people. Mm. Uh, and this is Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord helicoptering away. Uh, and and uh, that's Which a really means, Hebrew term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, helicoptering for sure. But uh, but that but that really means when the deity leaves the temple, the temple almost like ceases to exist, right? No. Well, yes and no. So this this institution in Jerusalem ceases to be the the primary residence of the deity. Got it. Uh, the deity moves. Yep. I think is a better way of saying. Yeah, it. yeah, that's good. Uh, and and the as Jesus says to his disciples in in the upper room in John's gospel, it's really advantageous that I leave. Uh, so that the spirit can come yeah and uh, this is where uh, god's presence through uh, jesus promise is now with them wherever they go uh, with pentecost the descent of the spirit on the church in acts 2. so uh, jesus it seems like his death was in some ways necessary for the temple to be recreated uh, as a people mm-hmm. uh, or or for the temple to 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 move for the deity to inhabit his new temple. Yeah, so he's using language in the Gospels like, like unless a single seed dies, right, then it can't spread. And so I think really, uh, when I'm looking at it, especially from the lens or the viewpoint of the book of Acts, you see this this veil being torn from top to bottom, and, and like you said, yeah, that, that does mean that we have access to God in some fuller sense than previously, because it's not like God wasn't with his people prior to that. In fact, like, they knew exactly where he was. But Jesus comes, dies this death, the veil is torn, and then, this is the crazy part, which kind of brings all of this stuff, like, full circle in my mind, because when Jesus appears in in John's gospel to his disciples, then he breathes on them, which is crazy, right? Like, what the heck is Jesus doing breathing on people? Unless you understand it, like you said before, from the entire whole story of Scripture where God is, in Genesis 1, animating his uh, people by breathing on them. And then now we have Jesus doing something very similar in John's Gospel where he's like, hey, um, what my death has done is it's, it's, it has unleashed the presence of God, has broken out of the temple, and now is going to spread to the whole earth. And so I'm commissioning you, I'm, I'm energizing you, I'm, I'm making you the type of people who are going to take this message to the whole world, so that, getting back to Genesis 1, the cosmos, right, is the temple of God, so that, so that the whole temple of God 
will be filled with his people. Is that a fair assessment of what's going on? God with his people is, uh, in the Old Testament, comes with several connotations. And, and uh, one of them is, well, look, I'm with you, so you need to be holy because mm. I'm in your presence, yeah. right? But another one is, if I'm with you, you win. Mm. Like, victory is done. Like, we will conquer the territory in front of us. Like, that's just uh, a guarantee. And I think that that same principle carries into the New Testament when he says that uh, the church has become this, uh, the temple as mm. we move out, mm. right? That God with us, that th- this church moves out and it's this, the spreading of the kingdom mm. is this foregone conclusion in a sense. that the, That's the, its function. That's right. That's right. It is the presence of God is in the world, in the church. It's, yeah. it's a remarkable thing that happens. Well, what's fascinating at the end of Matthew is he's commissioning his disciples to go and make disciples, which really there's a lot of, um, there's function statements in that too, like baptize them into the triune life, and then teach them to obey, right? Teach them to function like this. And then what's crazy is, and you know, a lot of people overlook this, but it's actually the most significant part of the Great Commission is this do statement at the end, like, hey, behold, like, pay attention to this. It's an emphasis marker. Hey, listen to this. I am with you always, right? Even to the even to the end of the age. From an OT perspective, that just screams. Oh, it's huge. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you cannot lose. You cannot lose, um, yeah. and also that has implications for how you behave. Mm. Like I, I like it, this is God's presence with you. This is, in a sense, uh, that has definite early Genesis connotations mm. and temple stuff. Like, uh, and also all of the OT. You, one of the things that may help readers while you're reading OT is to understand that what's going on is God is with His people. And the responses he has are appropriate to that. And then in the New Testament, um, you have this explosion of that. Yeah. This, this uh, a new understanding of that. It's, yeah, it's pretty epic. So I think that when, when we're talking about, um, again, the, the fullness of the story, because this is where in the you know, church age or whatever you want to call what we're in right now, um, this 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 uh, inaugurated kingdom that is already here but is not yet fully consummated, then um, that means that this is not something that we read and look at and go, oh yeah, well that was for them, and you know I just need to go to church on Sunday and don't worry about it. I mean this has huge implications for the kind of story that we believe that we're living. I mean, that's correct. We're back to Genesis again. When when the king takes up his residence on the throne and commissions his image bearers to go do their work, hmm. that's Genesis. Yep. Uh, that's also Acts. Hmm. So the king takes up his seat on the throne hmm. and sends his his agents out, uh, his image bearers to to go propagate. Right. Yep. That's, yep. Really, in a large part, what's happening, I think, in the Great Commission is that. Jesus is is recommissioning. It's not like it's a different commission. He's just saying, "Hey, go and make disciples." Translation, right? The um, something that was functioning in the beginning began to dysfunction in Genesis three, and now I, through the power of my Spirit, am am 
re-energizing, I'm reanimating this so that you can function the way that you're supposed to. There's a real sense of Jesus restoring uh, God's people to their rightful purpose. Yes. Um, by the power of the Spirit. I, th- I think you're right. That's that's a pretty significant thing that's that's going on here. So what are the implications for that for people today? I mean, ver- I, I think most people think of themselves as kind of Christianity as that thing that's over there for the Jesus freaks or the, you know, or the professional ministers that I write a check to and make myself, you know, appease my conscience like that. What would you say to them about the just type of narrative that the Bible places them in here and now? Yeah, I I mean, I I guess like you've pretty much connected the dots here. When you understand the story of God and Scripture, you find that you you've been written into it. Mm. Uh, you have a role, a part to play, and that, that is part of a people. So it's not just you alone, it's, it's you as a member of God's community. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that like, it's impossible under this view to see the scholar or the pastor as more significant than the person in the pew. That's right. Mm. right? Mm. Because I can't go into your place of work and be the yeah. kingdom. Yep. Right? Yeah. I can go into mine, but I can't go into yours. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you have to do it into yours. And and yeah. I think that that there is an imperative on your marching orders as a believer that are yours. They, I, you know, it, it's very important, and, and it matters that you are where you are. Yep. Yeah, a lot of times the the people that I you know encounter sometimes I think have this view. If I'm putting it into like athletic language or something like that. It's like, it's like okay, we're going to go to a football game, and the coach on the sideline is both going to be the center and the quarterback and the running back and the wide receiver and the, all that stuff. And me, who I'm dressed out to actually play the game and can play the game, am sitting on the sideline. And it's like, wait a second, timeout. No, you're in the game. When you go to work, you are the presence of God that's mediated to the people around you. And so... What are you doing in the spaces that you're in to be faithful to what the king, who is Jesus and not Caesar, right? What are you doing to be faithful to him to um, advance his kingdom? Well, I, I think this is it's really good you brought it back to the, the actual gospel. <laughs> um, a, a lot of times the, the thing that we think we're supposed to share is so much less. It's, mm-hmm. so, uh, it's emaciated compared to yeah, the gospel yeah, yeah. of the kingdom of God that... Jesus is Lord, mm. and He's called us to this dignified and purpose-filled existence, mm. uh, full of love and forgiveness and uh, and grace and humility. Whereas we just think our job is to truth bomb somebody with "Jesus died for your sins and yep. you can go to heaven someday," yep. right? I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, it's very reductionistic. Yeah, it is. It is. It's just a small piece. It's like the Super Bowl ring that you get after winning the Super Bowl. Yeah, like the Super Bowl's been won. Yep. Uh, it's bigger than the ring. So what our task is, what we're called to, is to participate in the life of this kingdom as citizens of heaven, as subjects to the king, and, mm-hmm. and uh, winsomely call others to submit to God's right rule. And I would say, too, to extend that beyond the individual to you as a community mm-hmm. yep. are in this village and this city, and that's what's going on. And you as an individual are part of that community, that individual body of Christ at that church. Right. to say, we are engaged in this project. Mm-hmm. So things like 
holiness matter, but as a function of this yep, yep. other thing, yeah, right? Right, like, right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think there's a lot of times churches haven't really thought through, especially at a leadership level, which is why no one else has thought through it, that <laughs> these are team sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what does evangelism look like if it's a team sport? It's not a let's train you how to go to your workplace. It's uh, what does it look like to evangelize yeah. together? What yeah. is it, well, disciple making is a team sport, I yeah. guess, maybe more fundamentally. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're not looking at evangelism as, hey, let's get you saved. Yeah, right. right. No, let's get you right. as a citizen. Mm-hmm. Let's yep. bring mm-hmm. you into this kingdom that's the real kingdom, not yep. the superficial stuff yep. you yep. see yep. floating around you. And, and conversion is a, obviously a critical part of that, but it's just a part. And, and I feel like yeah, a lot of times... Entering the gate. Yeah, that's exactly it right. right. It's the beginning of the story. You know? So don't miss the rest of the story. <laughs> so really our view is just far too narrow. Oh, We're far totally. too narrow yeah. as individuals because there's a community around us. We're far too narrow in that... Uh, we're just being saved for eternal life and thinking that we're in this holding chamber until that day comes when yeah. eternity starts now. Yeah. We've been given God's Spirit now. Mm. And ultimately, I think when you think about it from a, like an eschatological st- or an end time standpoint, I mean, there's a, um, I was talking to a guy one time who just said, hey, this life is what Jesus is using to, to prepare us to live in his kingdom, and that's what sanctification is. And it's not like we have to just like gut it out here and white knuckle it until we go to some ethereal sky palace where we shoot Cupid their arrows at each other. You know, it's like no, actually, the kingdom of heaven is going to be here and now, physical, material, the new earth, us in his kingdom, functioning the way that we were always supposed to function. Well, and in Christ, there's fullness of life. Yeah, like he says that it's not waiting; it's today. Yeah, totally. That's yeah. true. The kingdom is now and not yet. <laughs> That's right. If you have a kingdom of God that preaches tomorrow, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. not the one Jesus talked yeah. about. Roger that. Yeah. Roger that. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, yeah, I mean, it's exactly what he says. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. I think there's a there's some nuance there. He's like, hey, yes, I'm bringing in the kingdom of God in a, in a unique way, but also I think he's saying, um, I'm the embodiment of the kingdom, and I'm standing right in front of you, you know? So, so it, it is, it's pretty instructive too, the, the disciples in Acts 1, after Jesus has been with them, the resurrected Jesus, and he's preached the kingdom to them for 30, 40 days. I mm-hmm, can't remember what mm-hmm. the number is. Yeah, 40. Probably 40 if it's the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they say, hey, Jesus, is that's now the time listen, when you're going to... That's gonna interesting, res- the 40 number. I know. Yes. You're so smart, Scott. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, it's so like you're an Old Testament say, guy okay, or something. Yeah. Now's the time. Now's the yeah. time, right? Yeah, Jesus, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. going to restore your kingdom. And he doesn't say no. He says... Get to work. Yep. When the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. comes, get to work. Yeah. That's that's the kingdom. I love it. So, Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun, man. I appreciate y'all's time. And, um, man, listeners, if this is the first one, this is actually part th- uh, three of, of, uh, of three, so this is the last one. But you can go back and listen to the first two. We've been talking about context and the importance of understanding the context um, when you read Scripture and just connecting those dots that a lot of times get missed or glossed over. Um, and so these guys have been a huge help to us. So Eric, Scott, Dan, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate you guys being on with us. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. So you can check out these guys at the Pillar Seminary at uh, pillarseminary.org. They have a podcast on there. So I've referenced a couple of times some things that have been on there. So you can go back and listen to those. I highly encourage you to listen to them. I've listened to every one of them. And so I think that that would be really helpful. You'll probably hear some of the same things we've talked about, but unpacked 
in more detail and uh, some color commentary there. And then also you can take an, an online class with Scott Booth, I believe. Um, you can go to their you can go to their website and check out what it's like to be a student there. And uh, obviously you can give to them as well. They rely on gifts uh, for their students to make it through there without taking on a whole bunch of financial burden, which is a big deal. So um, definitely encourage that. And then, hey, if this has been helpful, we encourage you to subscribe to it. There's going to be a lot more content coming your way. And uh, so you can subscribe, share it on social media, tell your friends about it. We appreciate you guys listening in, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Later. <laughs>